Hi, this is Adina here with today's episode of Wonder Your Way to Brilliant, podcast show of Courage to be Curious. And we have had a series running now for almost two months on amazing women who lead with incredible amounts of curiosity. And today's episode is no different than that. The only difference in today's episode is the privilege that I have of how well I know the guest. Because the guest on today's episode is actually an aunt of mine by marriage, Linda Targan, Rabbi Linda Targan, who is recently published a book it's got a great title. I'm going to ask her to share that with you. And she is here to share about what the fruits of her productive curiosity through midlife has left, led her to. So, Linda, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And as, as usual, great to talk to you, too. So, Linda, first thing I want to have you do, because it is such an awesome title to your book, is share the title of your book and just a few words about what, is, what it's about. Well, the book is called Funny You Don't Look Like a Rabbi, a Memoir of Unorthodox Transformation. And uh, I, I came to the title in a couple of ways. It's something that people say to me all the time. They had said it to me in the past and they continue to say it to me. Uh, my husband who used to have a beard used to accompany me to these rabbinic uh, gigs that I had and they would kind of step all over me to get to him because apparently he looked more as like a rabbi than I did. Um, so that so that was one piece. It continues to, to resonate. I'm not sure what a rabbi looks like these days because I know Asian American rabbis, I know African American rabbis, I know transgender rabbis, so on and so forth. I don't think any rabbi looks like any rabbi, but um, I, um, I wrote this book uh, because when I applied to the first rabbinical school, that I uh, thought that I would be invited into. In fact, they rejected me. And uh, I tried to find out what it was about my application that didn't resonate for them. They invited me into their uh, master's program. They thought that I had enough know-how status to be in the master's program. But in the end, they told me that they couldn't image me as a rabbi image me as a rabbi. What exactly does that mean? I'm not sure. Um, does it mean that if you're very fashionable that you can't also be smart? Does it mean that if you're not fashionable that, uh, that you don't care about aesthetics? I'm not exactly sure. But the cover of my book actually does not have my face on it because that since the title is funny, you don't look like a rabbi, I didn't want to show people actually what I looked like. And even though I'm dressed in all of the accoutrements, I'm wearing a tallit, I'm wearing a Jewish star, I'm reading from a prayer book, from a door. people still say you don't look like a rabbi. So that was one thing. And the other thing about not showing my face is that I decided that it's what's inside that counts on more than one level. Uh, it's what's inside the book that counts rather than just uh, the cover. Uh, funny, though, that we always say you can't judge a book by a cover, and I don't think you can. And also, I think it's what's inside your heart, what's inside your soul that really matters. Not so important what you look like. It's more important uh, what, you, what you do and who you are. 
So, um, and then the second part is a memoir of unorthodox transformation. It's a memoir. It's the truth of my life as I remember it, the truth of my life as I told it. And I was transformed in midlife uh, professionally. I went from being a teacher, a public relations professional, a journalist, and uh, now I've combined all those things into also being a member of the rabbinate. Oh, which is, you know, just great evidence of the curiosity that you have, because I do know, I know you had a long history as being a writer and always just this fascination with the world around you. And I've experienced that personally in my life, the way that you look at things, everything from finding, of course, your grandchildren fascinating, but just the things you see around you and the places that you visited and the things that you do that you have an abounding amount of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And you must, you also have an incredible amount of courage because you don't make a change like this. If it's a big deal, right? To go from a life where, okay, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a writer, I'm doing all of these things. And then suddenly to kind of approach this idea of, huh, maybe I'm going to go and shift not just your life because mm -hmm. becoming a clergy person means shifting the lives of everybody around you as well in a bit of making this change. And so I want to start with first thinking about you know, what were some of the clues? We talk a lot about change on this podcast. And, you know, how do you know when you're moved to make a really big change? So what were some of the clues for you? Well, first of all, I want to say that I started my book from the place of uh, my parents' divorce. I wrote about the, the day that my father left um, and say that I remember it as well as I remember last night's nightmare because it was a, a nightmare. It plunged my family into complete disarray. We were living in Reading, Pennsylvania. We had a beautiful new house. And all of a sudden, my father left and he moved in with another woman who eventually became his wife. And my mother was a single parent back in the day when it was considered a, a disgrace that we call it a shanda. Uh, in Yiddish, really. Um, and she had no job skills and she was very young and we had we became impoverished and uh, she became depressed and we had to move from our lovely house in Brooklyn with the rolling backyard into a the back of somebody's duplex apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And I had an image uh, Brooklyn being really a, a, a difficult place. And, uh, and it, was a, it was very, very, very hard. So um, I'm, used to, I'm used to kind of making changes and um, I, I had to move up from there. So the thing, after all, all of the, um, the, the difficult changes in my life after my parents get, uh, became divorced, the thing that was sustaining for me was the presence, the continual presence of my grandparents. They were Polish immigrants and they were very attached to their old world ways. They were very attached to their Judaism, to their rituals, to their life cycle events, uh, to the weekly, monthly, yearly um, rituals of Jewish life. And they instilled that in me. And they loved me. They loved me. I was the first grandchild and the first great grandchild. And so one of my initial awakenings is that I write about I'm going to read a little bit, a couple of sentences from my book, which appears on page 26, um, is though Shabbat is a weekly holiday, Bubby and Zeta taught us that there are many beautiful holidays throughout the Jewish year 
that offer specific rituals and practices. One autumn, Rosh Hashanah morning, when I was about six or seven years old, Bubby introduced me to the world of organized Jewish formal prayer in their East New York, Brooklyn synagogue. While I was still in bed shortly after the sun came up, she asked me if I wanted to hear the blowing of the shofar. Sure, I said, not knowing what a shofar was. Later, I learned that it was a ram's horn traditionally sounded on Rosh Hashanah to shepherd in the new year. My mother dressed me up and we went, we mounted the three flights of heavy marble steps until we reached the women's section. Even though I was young, I was aware that women at this time and in this setting had only supporting roles. Few questioned the system. I watched and listened in amazement to what was going on beneath me in the services. And I was hypnotized by the choreography of the service. I wanted to understand more of the mystery of the moment. I asked Bubby a lot of questions, but she kept shushing me with her index finger over her lips. When I was able to immerse myself in the sacred books of those days, I would penetrate one page at a time and the course of my life changed. And so that's where my curiosity began. What is the shofar? What is the service going on? What are those men that are wrapped in those uh, talesim and their prayer shawls? What are they doing? What are they saying? Where do women fit into this? Why are women sitting all the way upstairs when the men are downstairs? There were so many questions and the curiosity continued uh, to resonate within me. So I guess that was the, the, the seedling that began to germinate. And at a point in my life when I felt extremely privileged and really had a lot going for me, I was involved with many things. I had a, and I, I had a, a professional life and I had a family life and I had a philanthropic life and I had a traveling life. There was still something gnawing at me, itching at me over and over again um, to find something else. And when I finally figured out that it was my inner life, the inner spirituality, that's when my curiosity really started to rage. I love when, as you were talking, one of the images that came into my mind, it's almost like that seed that got planted and it started to grow, but then someone kind of started to limit it, like had the ceiling on it because other things were happening. And it's like pushing and pushing. I want to get out. I want to get out. I want to grow taller. I want to grow bigger. And it took a number of years until finally like, oh my goodness, little seed or little plant. I'm so sorry. I've been limiting your growth. Let me open up. And then here's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you have to know where the, where to bring the light in for the, for the growth. And you have to know where it can be fertilized. You have to know what kind of soil it needs to, to, you know, find its, find its roots. So it takes time. So it's not necessarily just a, a straight path. It's, it's a circuitous path and you have to be aware of the, of the symbols. And it took me a long time to hear some of the voices and it took me a long time to realize that even the things that I was saying, that I was hearing, uh, there were things that I wasn't hearing that were beneath the surface and I really had to access that, access my own inner life to be able to hear the, the voices uh, within me and surrounding me as well. You have to be ready for them. That's the thing. It's the opportunity to be ready and the spiritual awakening that I have that I think has to uh, meet in order for you to to make changes. 
So when you actually got to the place, you know, where you decided you were going to do this, it really wasn't just a decision about you, because as I said, entering rabbinical school and going to the rabbinate would have impacts on everybody around you. So it wasn't just about you. So I'd love for you to share a little bit. What were you considering at that time? And I know you've written about this in the book and, you know, what enabled you to finally make the, the leap to do this? Well, I just had a burning passage. One of my rabbinic mentors said to me, you only join the rabbinate when you have nothing else to do. And I thought, nothing else to do? Wow, I, I can travel, I can write, I can, I can do my business. I have lots of things to do. But in the end, going, joining the rabbinate was the only thing that I could do. It was the driving force. Um, fortunately, um, my kids were already out of the house. So it wasn't as though I had to be making dinner at a certain time or making Purim customs. I mean, as you know, when you have children, they're your children for life and they always have needs and desires and uh, you always have connections and, and worries and loves and all the things that, that do keep you um, involved with your children's lives emotionally and physically and all, and all of that. But being that they were out of the house, I didn't have the immediacy of having to do the day to day, but I did have my husband <laughs> and, um, and he just was very, very flexible about everything. He just recognized, um, he recognized the passion within me. And I think he recognized that he, he needed to go along on this ride because I wasn't going to be a happy wife, happy wife, happy life. I wasn't going to be a happy wife unless I was able to do that. But I did have a lot of uh, preparation work to do. I, I didn't know an Allah from a bet at the time, and I was already in my mid-40s. An Allah from a bet, meaning the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, I knew nothing. Um, and so before I even applied to rabbinical school, I had to get two master's degrees. Um, and I did do that. And so things started shifting around. And I just realized that the process was so illuminating that I was, I was loving being, having my nose in those books and getting to meet the sages and learning wisdom from antiquity that was still relevant. And so I, I was happy. And even though it was very, very hard, um, it was very sustaining at the same time. And because I was happy, um, my husband was also happy. And so he went for the ride and, um, and he was for me. He was, he was for what it was that I desired to do. He always has been and he always will be, I'm assuming. So he's, he's a good partner in, in, in this endeavor. And I think that both of our lives have been enhanced uh, by my being able to become a rabbi. I think we've met, we've been able to meet amazing people. Uh, he's able, he's been able to ask amazing questions of some of the people that we have met. We've been very involved with Israel on, on many levels. And so I think he's happy that I, um, that, that I made this decision. And I think more than the things that he had to give up were the things that we gained together as a, as a couple. And I think one of the things, both from your description and knowing both of you, is that you are both curious individuals. And, you know, I, I've seen your husband in those cases, too, that this might not have ever been what he thought was going to be in the plan for your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but 
the, his ability also to rise up and say, I'm going to be with you and being a partner with you means I'm going to engage from a place of interest and engagement as well, that I'm going to fully participate and not just hang on the sidelines and say, go do where you, what you want, but because he's such a curious individual too, that he was really able to fully step up and engage. Yeah, and he was and he was curious about my curiosity as well. And I think, I mean, we've been married 51 and a half years. And I think that that's what's kept us engaged with each other is that we are that we each have our own uh, interests and professional endeavors. And um, but we share many, many values. And I think we understand what um, what kind of work it takes to maintain a relationship. Um, and uh, I think we have seen we, we have seen interesting things through each other's eyes, and that, I think it makes the relationship interesting as well. So, sure. <laughs> one of the things I'm curious about, because I don't think I've even ever heard you talk about this specifically, but how did making this choice change you on the inside? Because you said this was really internal work, you know, becoming a rabbi. It's not just learning all the rituals and the skills and the prayers and things like that. That's all the external stuff. But it's a big embarking on, you know, looking inside too. So how did this experience change you on the inside? I think so many ways. I, I think it connected me to my grandparents again. Um, I was able to kind of resurrect the Judaism that they instilled in me uh, back, back in the day, what kept me stable, what kept both my sister um, and, and I uh, stable and not becoming Lulu birds and all of the craziness that uh, occurred as a result of my parents' uh, divorce. And uh, I think that it changed me because I see that I am serving God, that I'm, I'm of value in the world um, in the service of God in this particular way, not to diminish anybody else's serving of God and not to say that you only serve God if you're a member of the clergy, a cantor, a rabbi, a priest, a minister, or whatever. But for me, uh, it, it made me be available for people in their pivotal moments. And they, they sought my counsel in, in many of their pivotal moments. I've been with them in their weddings. I've been with them in their, uh, during their, the funerals when they, when they lose loved ones. And, um, and that's been a source of great pride for me, the fact that I can serve people um, and be there for their triumphs and their tragedies has been really, really uplifting for me. And it's changed me because I see that there is, um, that your past does not define you. I had a very difficult past, and yet um, I have found my way to, to success on many levels. And so the identity that I thought I could have had um, has, in fact, been completely turned around. And I think some of the things that I feel inside are almost ineffable. There's almost no words to describe um, how I feel inside, but I feel like uh, on many, many levels, it's made me feel self-actualized and um, that the purpose and the meaning that I had um, somewhere deep inside me in my life has, has been able to be realized through the, the um, the ordination process, through the process of studying and then becoming ordained. I do want to ask you, because of the title of your book, um, Funny You Don't Look Like a Rabbi, 
Maybe about the mo- the funniest or most interesting interaction you've had where maybe somebody has reacted to you that way. So you talked about the entrance and applying to rabbinical school, but in your practice as a rabbi, have you ever gotten any comments or questions or feedback on that? All the time. And it's for good and bad, I, I must say. First of all, I enjoy um, squashing somebody's expectations when it when it's a bad expectation. I have had people say to me, oh my goodness, you did such a good job. I didn't expect that of you. Well, well, why not? Um, I had somebody recently tell me um, in an interview, I was doing a wedding and said, I was all ready to criticize you, but I, I couldn't find anything wrong. Well, well, why, <laughs> you know, why? Well, you don't look like a rabbi. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think that it's a big issue actually in gender parity because I don't think that you would um, necessarily say that uh, to a man. But I'm I'm very happy when people have an expectation that maybe I won't be so great. And in fact, I I do a good job for them. And why shouldn't I? I mean, not not to say that you can't make some mistakes. Of course, we all have done that. But I, I know my work. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm very, very concerned about doing a good job for people, particularly when they're suffering or when they're celebrating. So I spend a lot of time and energy and effort trying to make it a good journey for the people that I come in contact with so, um, so that, that I am there for, for them and they can't and they can't be uh, disappointed. So, yeah. <laughs> it's all the time, huh? <laughs> what? Yes, that it happens all the time. and It know. happens all the time, all the time, yeah. And what happens in those moments, though, is the opportunity for people to have their own perspectives expanded, which is wonderful. So I want to just bring us back to, you know, the book again and say, as people are reading the book, you know, they're certainly going to get a lens into your life story. What do you hope people will take from their experience of reading it? Because there's your experience of having shared your story, and then there's the experience of the reader. So what do you hope people will take away when they read the book? Well, that was one of the reasons that I finally let this story go, because the story is about me. I know me the best, but the story is also about you. And the story is about you is about following your calling, the still small voice that we that we hear about. That it doesn't matter how old you are, that you that you can listen to a voice and transform yourself, whether it be professionally, spiritually, physically, that you have the opportunity within you to find your inner calling. I know people, um, I know somebody whose mother at 89 was getting a PhD. I know a young lady who left college uh, with a full scholarship to go fight in the IDF, in the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, not fight, but join in, in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces because she was called to do that. I know somebody else that had a very successful business. They sold the business, she and her husband, and now she's making jewelry, spiritual jewelry, and is a yoga and meditation teacher as well. 
And I know somebody that was a, a successful wedding planner, and now she's uh, creating the most unbelievable cookies and sending those cookies to frontline workers and to healthcare providers and so on and so forth. And very, very successfully. On and on and on. The people are um, listening to their calling. I, I want to say that if you've had a successful career, or in fact, you were a mom and a stay-at-home mom and um, and that was your calling for your life, and that is still calling to you. If you want to stay home and, uh, and, and read all day, go to the beach, play canasta, good, good on you. You know, listen to that voice. Um, God wants us to, to enjoy the world. And um, if you feel a calling to do something else, something professionally, that I, I want people to understand that you can. Um, and not to listen to the outer voices that are saying, no, you can't, no, you can't. Um, that uh, the dream crushers, I call them, the naysayers, that, you, that to bring the voice of, the, of what you want forward. So I'm hoping that really my book lets people know, I did this hard thing, you can do this hard thing too, or maybe you can do something that's a little easier uh, at whatever stage in your life, but it's something different. And while we're stuck at home in this pandemic, it's a time really to be uh, contemplative, to be meditative. What's our life going to look like when we're out of here? Are we going to have meaning and purpose? Are we going to be able to reinvent ourselves? Are we going to say, oh, well, I wasn't able to travel all this time, and now I want to be a traveler. That is calling to me. So that the, the one big thing is about um, following your calling, stepping into your power, not letting people judge you uh, when you're listening to your calling. And the second thing that I wanted to say, which is kind of a subset of that big, uh, the, that big meta piece, is that there's more than one path to the desired destination. So for example, I wanted to, to become a rabbi and I thought that I was gonna go to a particular school that was 12 minutes from my house, but in fact, it wasn't a fit for me. And I ended up uh, having to travel to New York, which did in fact uh, create some anxiety for me about having to, uh, to commute and so on. But uh, I figured out a way to be um, to, to get my smicha, to be ordained. And it was in a place that really was a, a, a better place for me personally. There were a lot of like-minded people there, second career people. And I must say that in five, the five years that I was there, and it was very difficult, I was very, very busy, and I was also recovering from a tumor that I had in a salivary gland right at the beginning of that process that kind of left, left me weak at the beginning. Every day I would say, thank you God for allowing me to be in this place because um, I just loved being with the people that I was with, being with those marvelous teachers, and, uh, and being able to be able to look into those sacred texts and, and start to unpack them and understand what it would mean for me as a rabbi and what it would mean for me individually as a, as a person, as a growing person, a curious person, I should say. Um, and the second thing that, um, that I wanted people to know, and this may not be as um, evident, and, but I'm telling you, 
that um, I got, I had a calling to write my book. And I started writing this book many, many years ago. There were a cu couple of stories in there that I didn't want to let out right away that I thought needed honing and so on. And book publishing as it is, is very, very difficult. As you can imagine, people want you to have an enormous um, social media platform. They'd like you to have a, a large persona and so on. And so at the beginning, I had an agent and the agent really was encouraging me to self-publish my book. And that wasn't really the way I wanted to go. And he was pretty much saying to me, well, you're not going to have a huge audience. And so it's not going to make a lot of money for me. And it kind of let it go. And that created a lot of difficulty for me because then other publishers thought that it was, it was already shopped and they weren't as interested in it. But lo and behold, I found another publisher. And uh, I loved working with her. So I didn't self-publish the book. I found a small independent publisher, another, a woman that I loved working with. Her name is Linda Rogar. And she was a literary agent back in the day. And she started the publish her own publishing imprint. And um, she has a little niche with, uh, with rabbis. And a few, couple of rabbis that I know have published with her. And she did a marvelous job. And she was just amazing to work with. So both getting into the rabbinate and getting my book published really had, as I said earlier, circuitous uh, roots, um, and yet we got the job done. So if one door seems to close, if you really continue to stay focused, stay curious, keep your eye on the prize, whatever that prize is, um, you'll get there. And that's, that's the message, really. <laughs> Right. And I love that. It's the embodiment of the name of this podcast, which is just keep wondering your way to brilliant, right? Yes. 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 So Linda, share with people how they can find you. And um, I do want to actually make sure the name of the book, again, is Funny You Don't Look Like a Rabbi, a memoir of unorthodox transformation by Rabbi Linda. And I've always loved how Linda spells her name, which is a little bit unorthodox as well. So it's L-Y-N-N-D-A, Target, T-A-R. So Linda, how can people find you, a website or social media yeah. Well, first of all, I do. I I was not named L Y N N D A. I tell the story of how I became L Y N N D A in the book. You'll have to read the book to find out how I how I um, developed that moniker. Um, but uh, they can find me on Amazon. Um, click on um, Amazon.com, BNN, independent bookstores, bookshop.org. Um, and I do have a website. Interestingly enough, it's Rabbi Linda, L-Y-N-N-D-A, Targon.org. It's actually in the process of being revamped. I didn't look at it today, but, um, but we're, working, uh, we're working on it and uh, trying to update it a little bit. So you can find me there too. And um uh, my email is ltargan at aol.com. Feel free to drop me a line. I'm happy to hear from people. Um, and, um, and, I, and I will answer you back. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And, you know, as I said, it's amazing to have a conversation with you in this way. I've known you for a long time, but to have a conversation in this way to celebrate these achievements and to really honor the curiosity that has led you in so many beautiful directions. And to 
you know, continue these conversations with women who are really leading, leading in their organizations, leading in their lives, leading in their communities with amazing amounts of curiosity. So thank you for being part of the program today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was wonderful. And um, I admire you. And I'm just curious as to how you continue to amaze me and um, and find and find connections and con uh, connectivity with all the things that you do. So God bless you. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. Okay. And you to join us for future episodes. We are going to be talking with more women who are continuing to explore their own curiosity and seeing how it's manifesting in their leadership, in their lives, and in their relationships. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to experience the full game-changing potential of the questions we explore, be sure to add your name to our mailing list at www.couragetobecurious.com. Our subscribers receive weekly notification of the podcast along with specific tools for using these questions on a daily and weekly basis to create positive and powerful impact. As always, the questions we explore on the podcast can be found in our Live, Lead, and Love with the Courage to be Curious card decks that are available at liveleadlovecourageously.com. And if you are interested in harnessing the power of productive curiosity for your company or organization, contact us about scheduling a professional development experience. In the meantime, keep wondering your way to brilliance.